the last few Digital Decisions podcasts, we have focused on the definition of digital public infrastructure, what countries need to do to take a DPI approach, and heard from leaders in Oldova and Kenya as they engage citizens in the design and management of DPI. In this latest episode, I sat down with Tunde Fafuna and Eleanor Carey to talk about the African Union's new interoperability framework for Digital ID. Tunde and I have intersected over the years during his work with the African Union and the World Bank. And in 2021, we both worked with this week's guest researcher, Eleanor Carey, on the development of the OECD's flagship report, Shaping a Just Digital Future. In that publication, I talked about the essential ecosystem components that each country needs to roll out DPI, including one of the main technical building blocks, a foundational digital ID. Tunde has been working closely with the African Union during its journey to develop an African-wide consensus on how each of the 55 member countries might roll out digital identity that can work within their countries and connect them across borders. This is a great example of how regional cooperation that provides a framework for countries to make these systems interoperability is so needed if we are going to scale DPI globally. And the key to all of this, collaboration. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Tunde and Eleanor, welcome to Digital Decisions. Before we dive into talking a bit about the African Union's efforts around digital transformation broadly, and some of the specifics of the digital ID interoperability framework. Tundi, I was hoping you could share with us a bit more about your journey from tech entrepreneur to tech policy specialist. How did you get here and how did you get interested in this? Thanks, uh, Kate, really great to uh, be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I started out after college in the private sector, was uh, keen on uh, computers and communications. And so started a business to teach managers about the, the uh, computer opportunities uh, to automate business. But I rapidly became more and more interested in doing things at scale. And so I moved to uh, working for Verizon uh, in the US. And that was a really interesting time as there was a lot of change in the in the industry. Uh, broadband was being launched. Uh, mobile was taking off. Things were, were changing and evolving. Um, and as I continued sort of that uh, journey and uh, led a telecom company in the Philippines, I continued to get more interested in... The, the frameworks and the policies and the strategies that would harness technology for the benefit of people. I saw a lot of things being done, a lot of innovation at the private sector, but it occurred to me that without public policy strategy and guidance, uh, we wouldn't get the best out of technology. Technology really wouldn't improve people's lives at scale. And so I've sort of worked my way. I'm not sure whether it's up or down the chain, <laughs> starting from uh, private business and individuals to, you know, regional and uh, continental uh, public policy. I always think the work is more rewarding, but the office space is worse. <laughs> so sort of the way I compare those two things. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Tunde, maybe I can come in and, and ask you a, a bit more specifically then about the work that you're doing now with the World Bank. Um, because, I mean, I, in this space, you know, really since since 2016 or so, the bank has been such a large driver in evangelizing, I guess, around digital identity. More recently, uh, G2PX as really fundamental building blocks of digital public infrastructure. Can you share a bit more just your view of the World Bank's approach to DPI, its current priorities, and the kind of the kind of support that it offers to regional and national governments, but maybe also the kind of demand that you're seeing from national level and regional level for this type of support? And sorry, um, maybe if I could also add, could you just also take a second to define for you and how you're seeing the African Union talk about digital public infrastructure just in general, because we're using that term, but everybody uses it slightly differently. Well, that's a great, great question. So digital public infrastructure, 
I think it's um, evolved to being a term used for a core set of platforms and services that ride on top of physical infrastructure and have, you know, characteristics of uh, transparency, standards, and openness to support uh, sharing of data and innovation of services, and particularly those that are based on uh, public and shareable information and that can be used by uh, the private sector as well. Um, in terms of um, my role and, and what I'm seeing, um, Eleanor, is, as you know, as we worked on uh, some of these uh, digital transformation areas previously when I was advising the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, there's been a broad push for digital ID, and that's happened at both the development institution levels where the principles of ID were created and supported by a broad range of institutions, uh, UN institutions, including the Economic Commission for Africa and UNICEF, uh, World Bank, and um, very many others. And we've seen the interest of getting identification to people grow. Governments have seen the power, the opportunity and necessity of uh, identifying uh, citizens. And we'll should go into that a little bit more. Um, on, on the bank side, the ID4D group has been a model of uh, openness and sharing, of collaboration, of really reaching out across public institutions, the private sector, um, civil society, to advance the uh, principles of ID. And so I think we're seeing both a, a push for ID and, and a pull from governments who are uh, you know, all keen to digitalize and identify citizens. Yeah, I think I think what's really interesting about the the digital space and um and issues around digital public infrastructure is that, you know, in many ways all countries are on their own digital transformation journey, right? So this is a, it's a global issue really and we saw it come up in in the G20 last year very strongly. And uh, and we're also seeing it come up for for OECD countries as well. So you know you might note that just last year um, we issued a, a recommendation on the governance of digital identity, and there you know that that recommendation was really emphasising the importance of inclusivity, privacy, security, enabling cross-border use. So these are issues that I think are occupying the headspace of policymakers in countries all over the world. So I think that model that you talked about around collaboration, sharing, advancing principles is really, really important to make sure that we're doing that at a global level, right? And not to necessarily think that some countries have it worked out already and, and other countries maybe not. It's something that we're seeing in the OECD context that particularly since COVID-19, that there's been a real increase in demand and focus on issues around digital public infrastructure in particular. And, and in some ways, you know, just, you know, just if we think about the, the governmental side, we see this leap from e-government into thinking more about digital public infrastructure. So not just a kind of one way delivery of public services but much more about how can we break silos across governments? How can we, as you said, ensure that the private sector can really kind of benefit from and innovate on the basis of digital public infrastructure that the, the public sector might put in place? And what are the citizen-to-citizen -citizen engagement that that can allow as well? Do you see examples of this coming up in, in the context that you work in? Yes, I do see pieces uh, of that. A lot of times it's not named uh, digital public infrastructure, but it has many of those characteristics. And I think that there may be some different sort of models and approach. So, for example, India, which has really led the way both, you know, in thought leadership and in, in implementation uh, of this, uh, has one model uh, that's a sort of public-private uh, 
model for, for doing this that worked and seemed to work very well based on their deep tech skills uh, and innovation, which they've been building for more than 30 years. I think in other countries, it will uh, evolve differently. In Nigeria, for example, the payment gateway that was um, established via regulation, uh, via a sort of appointed champion in the area, created uh, an enormous uh, ecosystems for uh, different kinds of payment systems and innovation on payment systems uh, to evolve. And that has been very transformational uh, in the payment space. I think Kenya has its own uh, approach uh, based on M-Pesa. So I think we see a lot of innovation in some sense, the some of the principles around uh, DPI being implemented on the payment side. I think mm -hmm. some of the other areas, such as general data sharing, for example, uh, identification uh, and the integration of identification, I think are still still evolving. To Eleanor's point and to your last comments, Cindy, I think that part of this is tied to the way we've set up programs in the past. So I think the power of the concept of digital public infrastructure is really about more of a holistic approach that takes into account a society's digital transformation overall. And so you're now saying like identity is then tied to payments, is then tied to the data exchange layer, which is then tied into how that data is going to be used in the future around AI and then training it to both deliver services, but not just one way, but really to bring those input back from the citizenry. And I think we've looked at it either by the silo of ID or payment, but then we've also looked at it in the context of the individual countries. This is what India did, or this is what Estonia did, or this is what Rwanda did. And I think it's time to Eleanor's point to kind of break this out and say, every country is on this journey to figure this out. None of us have actually really figured it out. So how do we learn from some of these models and then pick them up? And so it'd be interested in kind of hearing you comment on, do you think that taking, particularly in your conversations with the African Union, do you think that having the conversation at a more foundational level that is not just tied to digital identity, but is tied to sort of foundational digital public infrastructure would be more powerful than just focusing on, here's a new framework for digital identity. Here's a framework for AI. Because I keep noting we're developing all these different policies, but most of them are kind of interrelated. What do you think? I think that's a, that's a great question and issue. I, I would say that many countries and, and the African Union as a regional body have, have developed a digital transformation strategy, right? Or a national digital strategy at the African Union. It was the digital transformation strategy for, for Africa uh, 2020 to 2030. And most of them incorporate these different elements. Most of them incorporate approaches that are inclusive and that are collaborative, but then the actual implementation and activity on the ground or in the field, as you said, Kate, then sort of breaks into silos and we don't get that uh, integrated, interactive DPI effect. So I would agree with you that there is a opportunity, maybe even a need uh, to do that. I think that underpinning some of this is a need for, I'm going to say, more and better discussion and, again, overused word, collaboration between the various um, stakeholders, uh, sometimes even between uh, government institutions and, and offices themselves. Because this is large, it is complex, and it's it's difficult. And in many cases, we're talking about changing the engines of an airplane in in midair. It's it's disruptive. It's confrontational. It's it's challenging, and so it does require 
some sort of coordinating mechanism and, and some integrating mechanism at, at a political level in order to accomplish this. What are some of the barriers to getting some of that collaboration off the ground and coming around a kind of a common approach? Let's take the specific example of digital ID and the work with the African Union that you've really been supporting and, and helping lead over the last couple of years. Could you use that as a specific example? Because I think a lot of this always ties into the political will that is involved and how do you have build that everyone moving in the same direction? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the work with the, with the African Union and the approach that is taken is is a is a mixed approach so there are interests uh, from member states in specific uh, issues and almost everybody is is interested in digitalization and digital strategy and so the the African Union will work on those things that are important to the to the member states and this of course is one of them of course, there being uh, 55 member states, there's going to be a widely different um, interest and commitment uh, in the in the issue or any particular issue, and that sort of also changes over time. So when the African Union develops these uh, strategies, it's based on member input, it's based on experts, it's um, rolled out in a very formal process that involves uh, member states reviewing and um, up approving the strategy, which has happened with the interoperability strategy for uh, digital ID, for example. And then the the AU is is tasked to advocate and promote the agreed strategy. Now, the African Union Commission has uh, limited uh, resources. It it doesn't have implementing capability. So it's very much depends and expects that the member states will then take up these frameworks and approaches and standards, and it'll be facilitated by the, by the African Union Commission. Now, of course, unlike the EU, um, unless it's a treaty-based agreement, which it rarely is, and that takes years to ratify, it's not binding on, on the member states. Right. So it really requires a significant amount of continued effort to move these policies forward. And that's a huge challenge. So you do get a disconnection between these higher level frameworks and strategies and then what national governments are doing. And there's a huge gap there that needs to be filled in order for this for this to be successful and interoperability to be successful at the uh, continental level maybe one key exception to that and there's there're probably several but would be the african continental free trade area right and that that is a treaty obligation by member states to to integrate and and boost uh, inter, intra africa trade and of course that requires digitalization and there's a digital track as is one of the four or five critical tracks but that would in some sense that's that's the exception this isn't a binding obligation and then you have you have a number of other efforts around digital identity whether that come out of whether that be in smart africa whether that be the eac how do these efforts come together and could you talk a little bit more about how to fill the gap that you see missing between policy and implementation. In part, I'm asking this question because, you know, obviously the African continent isn't unique in this. Most countries are struggling to do this, as Eleanor noted, and, you know, most regional groupings are trying to figure this out. So there might be some lessons from the African Union's experience that would help colleagues in Latin America or would help colleagues in ASEAN that, Sure. So the efforts start out, I would say, very collaboratively. And you mentioned Smart Africa, for example. Uh, so they were part of the African Union uh, strategy, both on digital ID interoperability as well as data governance. 
Uh, there was a data policy framework that, that also came out uh, about the same time. The UN Economic Commission for Africa would be involved, you know, the regional bodies, whether it was uh, ECOWAS or EAC or SADC. So there is, um, the framework exists for those initial collaborations and cooperation. And when uh, each of these regional bodies pursues a regional strategy, say Smart Africa, and they have their uh, ID blueprint and interoperably, interoperability blueprint, uh, the African Union and others are, are invited. So I, I think that initial structure is there. The, the challenge is that there seems to be limited funding and resource for continuing the collaborations uh, past this sort of a strategy and policy area. And I think that's really where uh, part of the gap and perhaps the most significant gap is that there's resources, funding and interest in these um, initial uh, collaborations and framework, but the funds and the resources seem to uh, seem to dry up uh, pretty quickly after that. And then it, it, it simply sort of shifts to the, the national level. You know, maybe if I can pick up on that, I mean, I think there is, what we often see is there's also a temporal aspect to a lot of this in the sense that it's not just about making sure that there's collaboration around the frameworks and the strategies, but then of course you have the gap between a strategy and implementation, but also, the technology is moving so fast that it is a huge policymaking challenge to ensure that your strategies are always up to date, even if you are implementing them. You know, so to to build this um, very different policymaking capacity, which is more agile, which is more responsive to what's actually going on in the technological space, it's a huge challenge. And and certainly we've seen that in some of the work that we've done on a, a horizontal project that we have here at OECD on ongoing digital. You know, even for our members, it's a, it's a huge challenge just to just to keep up. I mean, Eleanor, that's such a, a fantastic point that I'd like to tease out a, a little bit more in that when Kate talked about where the gaps and what might be critical is, it is that policymaking, uh, public public strategy, public regulation piece that underpins what is going to drive success or not at at scale. And you have noted, you know, you have a you have a technical aspect uh, to this uh, in terms of digitalization, but then you also have that that constant change and and disruption <laughs> that you you mentioned, and that just makes it. Uh, incredibly, incredibly complex, right? So when we ask the question, how well prepared is government and government institutions and and regulators, and the, the we we can argue about the the role and and the approach and so on, but clearly there is a significant under resource in that area, and there's under resources in almost every area, and everybody's gonna going to claim that there aren't enough resources, and that's true, but there, there are some that may be more critical than others. There's some where application of additional resources will have a disproportionate benefit, and I think that's that's one of those. So, you know, regulators, institutions, uh, their capacity, their resources, uh, the expertise, so critical uh, in this area that moves so quickly. And Tunde, maybe you can take us into uh, kind of narrowing in uh, again on the uh, the digital identity um, issue. In the time that, that you've been working on this topic, how have you seen the, the state of digital identity across the continent evolve? Have we have we moved on a lot uh, in the last few years? And maybe from a, a place of personal curiosity, because I used to work a lot on civil registration and ID systems. And of course, there, you know, we're aware that there are many issues that can come with ID around inequalities, particularly for women and girls. And so curious how you're seeing digital ID as maybe a way to address some of these issues? And how do you kind of safeguard against perpetuating inequalities that, that might have existed in analog systems? So the, the World Bank recently released another ID data set, uh, which updated one that they did 
uh, several years ago. And in the original one, the estimate for the African continent was about 500 million uh, Africans without a, a fundamental or, or official ID. And I think the, those, the, the latest uh, report, which was released, I think, just a couple months ago, I think estimates the number now as 450. So the answer to your question is that some progress has been made you know, 50 million, and, and the numbers are probably rough, you know, uh, yeah, 100 million is is a large number and is significant, but we've got a very long way to go, a very long way to go. The issues around inclusion and gender, I do think have significantly improved. I think that through COVID in, in particular and the implementation of social protection uh, programs, the realization that the need to provide social benefits is far more effective to give that to the woman in the household. And there's significant evidence for that and where the money gets spent on family needs in terms of food and education, I think is much more recognized. But the ID data set still shows, you know, a significant gap in terms of who has ID between men and women. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that is critical for digital transformation is a safeguards layer. You know, we've talked about DPI, but DPI as generally defined does not include any of the safeguards. And I think that the EU in particular has led the way in this area because we know that there are significant harms and we know that the way that the economic models that we have and are being used globally have actually increased inequality over the last 30 years. So deploying any kind of technology directly along those economic models are, are likely to lead to an exacerbation of that, that situation. So we have to make specific interventions to ensure that that doesn't happen. If I could just follow up on that, because I noted in the framework that there was a strong emphasis on GDPR. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about the choice to focus on a GDPR-led lens versus alternate models or developing a uh, uniquely African approach for data protection. I think that there, there was a recognition of GDPR as still the most practical particularly with modifications and its evolution um, of the models of personal data protection. And it's the one that has been deployed most widely and implemented most widely and has the most evidence for its strengths and its weaknesses. And there was there was a lot of debate on this uh, on this particular item, uh, you might imagine. Uh, but I think overall the report in its attempt to be practical and pragmatic, recognize that GDPR seems to be the right starting point for thinking about exactly what model gets gets implemented. And could you comment just a little bit on some of the modifications that you've made? Because I think I think many countries feel exactly the same way. But there's often been some sort of it's often GDPR has often had some criticism of it's a little too heavy for more developing context. And so I think for countries who are kind of looking at it as a starting point, but would like to modify it, what the AU has done here might be really interesting to them. Sure. I think the criticisms are well known. Uh, GDPR was obviously developed quite some time ago. I mean, even though it's, it's evolved and its complexity is, is a challenge, as you said. I think that one of the key innovations that has that has evolved is an understanding that data needs to be classified, that we simply can't think of data as either private and personal or open for any sort of use. And there has been a significant amount of discussion across the continent 
about data. There are issues around data sovereignty and where data can be processed and where data can be stored. And that has had some of its own challenges. So I think that the key sort of part of the breakthrough thinking is a need and opportunity to categorize data um, so that it can then be properly uh, managed and handled and the right amount of an appropriate amount of, of protection, Benny, uh, can then be applied. And I think that is probably the, the key difference in the thinking that GDPR seems to be sort of a all or nothing framework, whereas different rules need to apply to different types of data. And I think that that's, uh, that that's one of the significant changes. The other one, though, I think is a is a emerging understanding that data and personal data protection has two sort of aspects. One is that there are things about us that are uh, inalienable, as my legal friends would say, that cannot be traded or sold or bartered or exchanged, but that there is a whole lot of individual and, and personally generated data that is used and bought and sold and exchanged a lot, a lot of times for, for free or for services of questionable value. And that there is a need to understand and try and monetize that on the continent. Uh, and there's a lot of emerging thinking now, now on doing that. So would that be an African monetization of non-personally identifiable data that, that then could be sold? Well, it could very well be personally identifiable data if there was consent to do that. And in many cases, it could be very much more explicit about people generating data that they are willing and knowingly wanting to, to sell and get value for. Because the current model seems to simply assume that either some data is private or I give consent for my data to be used in ways in which I am not compensated, but simply to access certain services, for example. So instead, this might be a model in which the African continent, so please correct me if I'm wrong, I just want to make sure that I'm summarizing this accurately, where you are developing the data assets that then could be, with, with user consent, used and sold to generate financial income for countries or for people. Exactly. Interesting. Yep. Very interesting. And again... It, it's certainly going to be something that uh, very likely starts at a, at a country level, right? And is probably done within within the country or made available elsewhere, and then may become a more regionalized or being taken up by other countries as well. I mean, the the challenge again with the the frameworks and the and one of the things that the African Union frameworks are very cognizant about is the ability to allow people to be part and countries to be part of the framework at different levels. So not everybody has to implement the same level of, of security on ID to participate, right? Because some transactions require a lower level of security or authentication, and those should be able to occur even if the country is not meeting you know, the highest standards for all the different types of data. And it's that sort of flexibility that's that's important and that I think we'll we'll see here. So I think we'll see sandboxes and the emergence of some of these sort of micro or nano payments for data that is really quite a uh, potentially huge innovation in the way we think about data, uh, the way that uh, we give value to data to those who generate it. Eleanor, I'm curious, have our other OECD countries discussing something similar from your vantage point? I'll be honest, Kate, I was just wondering the same thing. So uh, not, not to my knowledge. I was like, I never thought, I've never heard of that. I was like, yeah, <laughs> not to my knowledge. But what, I mean, I was struck by two things. One was that, you know, when when we all worked together in, in 2021 on this report, there was some concern, I think, at that time that GDPR in particular was potentially going to 
have a spillover effect for some countries who were not necessarily maybe at the time able to be compliant or weren't compliant um, as uh, around issues around uh, trade and digital services, for example, and would it kind of lock them out of that trade? So I think this kind of stepwise approach um, to thinking about how countries can be on that path can also link quite well with their trade ambitions and, and their other economic ambitions. So I think that's a really positive step forward. At the same time, what I think it underlines is that, you know, globally in this space uh, around digital transformation in general, we have to be so mindful of every country's different starting points and what some of the, you know, the, the trade-offs might be around some of the kind of governance mechanisms that we maybe are, are thinking about putting in place. The other thing I was thinking just as you were speaking, Tunde, about this approach to to a new asset class, maybe, is the the parallels that I see in on the kind of green and climate side. Um, so I know that there's a lot of work going on in the African Development Bank, for example, in thinking about how to value natural assets. Uh, on the continent in a in a much more concerted way. Of course, that that's a global conversation as well. But I I think in some ways I, there there are parallels there, and the continent could could really be a leader in thinking about some of these new types of assets and how to, how to kind of generate the financial return for for the people who uh, either protect that asset or or generate the asset in the first place. So I think that's a really exciting theme uh, to follow as. I wanted to just pick up a little bit on your point, Eleanor, about countries being at different points. And one of the things I think that's really smart about the way the interoperability framework has been framed really focuses primarily on common principles, common standards, and the fact that each country or subregion within the continent may choose different technology solutions, different policy structures, but really is then kind of guiding everyone to make sure very practically that you can both enable trade as well as digital identity through cross borders. Could you talk a little bit more about the debate that took place around setting up those standards and those principles and and elaborate a bit more on what they are? And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about you know, discussions around, does it need to be open standards or open source? Because there's quite a big push in the digital public infrastructure space, having mm. not just be open standards, but open source software. Sure. So one key part of the debate were around exactly how far the the framework should go and how prescriptive it should be. And that came up at the beginning and reoccurred quite significantly throughout the throughout the um, project. The overriding decision was actually to keep it quite high level, to try to provide a document that provided some insights to regulators and policymakers of some of the different paths that could be taken and some of the different um, approaches that were available while emphasizing the common framework that included uh, transparency, standards-based, open APIs, security protection, and supportive data sharing. The document and the expectation, and I think the, the group, as a whole, came to the decision that a part two was going to be necessary because the document does end up being high level and it serves the purpose of creating the set of principles, but there still needs to be an additional framework of, it's fine to say each each member state can pursue their own as long as you know it meets the common standard. But what exactly is that common standard? You have common standard, and you do have to get down to some technicalities of exactly what the APIs are going to be, the request mechanisms are going to be, what is what is going to be the me- method of authentication of requests, uh, handling of data processes for uh, ensuring that the standards are met. So there are still significant technical nuts and bolts that need to be developed as as part of a 
part of a phase two. Sorry, is I that th what's happening now? And I noted that 2023, 2024 was really the time period for implementation. Is that where the group is focusing right now? That is the stated plan and the AUC is pursuing that. I would say that it is not yet being uh, fully pursued at, at this point, but it is in progress. So that is going to be key to ensure that it is following the principles and it still allows the, the individual states to pursue some of the different approaches. But I think there'll be some challenging discussions uh, in that forum as well in terms of addressing how much is open standards and how much is really open source. And I think some of that is going to be based on other things, as, as Eleanor has said, much of this is connected. What is the data classification going to be available so that it's, it's clear what needs to be applied to different kinds of data sets? Are we splitting, if you will, the DPI or enabling layer, which may require open source from services and some services interconnection that may be probably open standards is, is the right way to go? And maybe if I can um, zero in on this topic around collaboration, because I think you've been noting in your answers these different levels of collaboration at regional levels. But what we often see is country to country, right? And so some really specific examples where countries have partnered together uh, to, to kind of move forward in this space. Have you seen examples of really strong country collaborations at work? And what are the institutions that have helped to make this happen? And equally, if you have examples of where collaboration maybe hasn't worked out so well, and what do you think we've learned from, from those examples? A great question. In terms of where a collaboration has worked, one example I would, I would give uh, would be during uh, COVID-19, there was a an issue, of course, across the continent and, and countries to get basic information about uh, COVID-19 and preventative measures out to in the entire population. In that case, uh, led by the uh, UN Economic Commission for Africa, the five major mobile operators across the continent, including Orange and MTN and Vodafone, and Airtel, et cetera, along with a initial set of countries, including uh, Gambia, Guinea, and, and Senegal, agreed to collaborate to send out key messages to all mobile phones, regardless of who or where they are, or what plan they were on, or anything else, and to do that in coordination, cooperation across the mobile carriers, which never happens, and to do it essentially to open up doing that across the continent. Now, the uh, initial pilot was was successful, but at the end of the day, uh, other methods were used uh, and some of them more, more countrywide or regionally. But I think it, it provided a real insight into the fact that we can collaborate across countries and across the public and private sector when, when we think it's important enough, when we need to do it. And I think there are probably other examples of that at the national, maybe even at the regional level from COVID that perhaps we have not. I think many of us thought that, gosh, with, that, with things like that happening, you know, that would continue after COVID. And I, unfortunately, I think we may have lost some of that. We sort of we haven't quite gone back to where we were, but not sure we took the the benefits of some of the the things that we've seen. I've been part of uh, in the UNECA. We brought together, for example, Nigeria and Ethiopia on ID, and this was simply a a regulator to uh, regulator, policymaker to policymaker, a bilateral discussion, not a conference and forum and not a presentation, great achievements, but really intimate discussion on what worked and what didn't work. It was based on the fact that the Nigerian ID Management Commission was willing to share what had worked and what hadn't worked. And the journey of ID, which is always 
complex and and messy and two steps forward and one step back and approaches that that didn't see the light of day and restarted. They talked about the five or six plus efforts that it took and the different elements required both at sort of the political and social and institutional level to make things happen. And it was the, the report from the the open side was that it was a huge benefit because there was you're not going to learn that from anywhere else you're not going to learn that from the wonderful models and powerpoints of implementation and the great frameworks and the vendors that have the solutions that make everything work and i am a big proponent that there needs to be a lot more done in that area i think that there are forums to do that because there are lots of conferences uh, id for africa has one smart africa has you know the transformation agenda seminar, a conference, uh, ECA has them, occasionally the World Bank has them. But in many cases, they're not structured or they're not sessions that allow policymakers just to talk to each other directly, right? They're more presentation and public events. And so I think that there are, are frameworks available. I mean, great to create some new ones and uh, the Economic Commission for Africa and the and the Digital Center at one point was pursuing a whole agenda on that. But I also think that there are existing forums where these kinds of sessions, I'm going to call them private sessions, can be instituted. There's no other way to learn and to engage and to understand these aspects. With Kate, I know you. This point of this podcast is. You know, what what can be made practical? What are the real, real lessons beyond the the shiny PowerPoints? And this is where it has to occur. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And there's a couple of points that you called out that I think are critical. There's a lot of sharing, but unfortunately, public forums, as as amazing as they are, and a huge shout out to ID for Africa, because I think they do a fantastic job of pulling in different speakers and groups and webinars to give people a good overview of what's happening. But one of the challenges, as you know, is sort of in any public forum, there's a limit to what you can share, particularly as a policymaker. And so that ability to have this behind the scenes and, and perhaps calling attention to the need for this behind the scenes conversations that bring policymakers to talk to one another. I call it joint learning and was fortunate enough earlier in my career to work on a joint learning network where people shared these sort of stories. And one of the comments that a colleague from Ghana made, which I still think illustrates the power of this approach, is he goes, Katie, what you don't understand is we don't have time to talk to one another, even in our own country. And we don't have the time to sit down in the pressures of our daily job to go through this. So the ability to rapidly learn, that was about 15 countries, to rapidly learn from one another about what's happening and then take that back and apply it at home in a non-public forum, but truly as a practitioner to practitioner learning, it was just incredibly valuable to them. And that was an effort that was supported by, it was in the context of universal health coverage. It was supported by the World Bank and the Gates Foundation and Rockefeller and a number of others. But it just saw sort of the power of that approach. I think this is particularly important in technology because technology providers in government, if particularly we're talking about that, are very few and far between. They also may be housed in the ministry, such as health or in finance, where there's only a few other people who do precisely what they do. So their need for a peer group to have learned from, and as you said, not somebody who's trying to sell them something or somebody who's trying to push a different approach or has been paid to come give them advice on what's happened someplace else is incredibly valuable because they know that this advice is truly experiential and they can take from it what they want and and leave what doesn't work for their country. So it's I think it's a fantastic example. So sort of just to pick up on that, could you talk a little bit about some of the changes across the continent that keep you up at night? Is it this lack of capacity? Is it the lack of inclusion of ID? You know, what do you think policymakers and funders are getting right? And what could be improved? So 
I think that what policymakers are getting right is the growing awareness of the challenges and opportunities of digitalization. I think that over the past few years, and particularly with with COVID, there was we moved from people paying lip service to the various concepts and knowing, yeah, I've got to mention digital in my political speeches to now realizing that and taking the time, some of the time to to understand, start to understand, as has been mentioned here, we, we're all learning and sometimes we tend to forget that. <laughs> um, but this is a journey of discovery and exploration. And, and so I think that the the growing awareness that something needs to be done, I just can't talk about it at the political level, is, I think, something that's that's much more visible. So there's uh, a, almost a new sense of urgency. Yes, an urgency of, we, we can't just talk about it, we have to do something about it. we have to do something with this and do something about it. What keeps me up at night is the lack of the forums, platforms, institutions for collaboration, for for really open collaboration. And I know it's an overused term and everybody's sort of like good housekeeping. You got to mention it and yeah, you got to do it, <laughs> which is which is a bit unfortunate. But I think the the key marker is, is civil society involved in the initiative? If civil society is involved, that for me is an indicator that the discussions and collaborations are happening kind of in the way that they should. If civil society is not part of how ID is designed, how it's thought of, how it's going to be rolled out, how it's going to be adopted, how it's safeguarded, ensuring inclusion, user experience, and, and everything else, then that to me is a is a marker that collaboration i'm sure it's going to be used is is really just lip service and 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 isn't happening um and i think that's what that's what uh keeps keeps me up at night because these technologies are so powerful so much needed that we need to deploy them but at the same time have huge risks and i believe that the only way that those risks are adequately safeguarded uh, is actually underpinned by civil society participation, but of course requires all three domains, if you will, civil society, the private sector, and the public sector. But public sector and politicians will go and will, will, will change, and the private sector is, uh, can be dominated by, by certain players. And so civil society is, is the best and the ultimate safeguard. So that's what, that's what keeps me up at night, maybe, is that civil society is not significantly and adequately uh, included in, in this whole domain and discussions. And there, of course, plenty of exceptions where they are. I'm really interested in this public-private civil society coming together forum. And I'm wondering if you see, you know, I work particularly with our committee on development assistance. And so I'm wondering if you see a particular role for for funders, for partners, either bilaterally or multilaterally, in helping those kinds of forums to, to come together. Because I think what's interesting in this space is that there's a whole side of it, which is very big ticket infrastructure, you know, laying cables, etc. But there is this, there is another side of it, which is much more around governance, around collaboration, bringing, bringing people together. So I'm just wondering, you know, whether there are specific examples, or if you see just in general, particular roles that that development cooperation partners can be playing in this space that can help to, to bring these kind of coalitions together? The answer is yes, because of course, development partners provide expertise and they provide money. So the question is when those are being provided and the projects and the funding is, is flowing or being designed, does it 
include civil society? Does it include the local delivery? And I think it, it's as simple and as hard as that because it should be included right from the beginning, right? Right from the design of the project, through implementation, through monitoring and evaluation. If we're going to talk about inclusion in a world that is fundamentally not inclusive, we have to be talking about how at the community level that is being delivered. Otherwise, we're just paying lip service to it, right? So because it's not going to get to inclusivity by itself or just because of the so-called framework or design. And if if I may, just to sort of not not veer away, but the you know, we've talked about DPI, we've talked about safeguards, but the underlying physical infrastructure is very incomplete across the continent. Of course, again, there are countries that have really pretty much full uh, coverage and accessibility. But overall, from a unique subscriber perspective, and we are putting everything on the back of mobile as we should, as a mobile first uh, uh, a continent, but only 60%, according to the ITU, unique subscribers is the percentage penetration in the continent. That's 40% of people that aren't really using mobile. Now, of course, mobile phones are shared and, you know, in a family, you know, it's going to get passed around, et cetera, et cetera. And in many cases, that's, that's, that's good. But there's a significant number of people that are not yet included. Now, if you're now layering internet access uh, on top of that, let's not even talk about broadband, but just basic internet access, then the numbers are dropping by half. So we have a still a fundamental physical infrastructure issue that needs to be addressed because all the services that we're talking about get built on top of this, whether it's mobile or internet or or broadband. Absolutely. I think it's it's such a critical point. And particularly when we kind of get into the space, we're talking about DPI or even AI to just really bring it back to the the reality um, for so many people in so many countries that not just internet access, but electricity access, for example, you know, all of these things are are very connected. Maybe just to, to pick up on your point about local delivery, I, I do see uh, maybe the stars aligning in some ways in the sense that in the development cooperation space, there's a lot of focus right now. And I think over the last few years, particularly since COVID on locally led development. So I think there's a, the whole theme of work to be done on what does locally led development look like in the digital context? And how do we ensure that development cooperation partners are really supporting that and, and putting in place the, the right mechanisms to make sure that that happens? And so maybe I can ask you then to, to kind of draw on, on all of your, your knowledge and your experience about if you were to advise another regional group that's considering a digital transformation strategy or interoperability framework, what, what advice would you give them? What choices should they make first? What pitfalls should they avoid? If, uh, if they were doing it you know, from scratch, where would you advise them to start? I would advise to start at the local level. I'd actually advise to start by inviting and polling and communicating and interacting with civil society and, and local organizations that know the kinds of challenges that people face, much of which we know, and there's good evidence about, you know, why there is an adoption and, and, you know, some of them are infrastructure in terms of, you know, electricity, et cetera. But I, I think then we would be uh, not only uh, designing and approaching these from a community sort of based and led led basis, but then there would be support, including social and maybe even political, that yes, they're going to get something that is needed and wanted, right? And so I think that sort of local groundswell approach may serve us a lot better than sort of the the top down and in some cases we haven't really talked about some of the things that haven't worked, but occasionally, you know, some of the ID programs are forced, forcibly <laughs> implemented with, you know, un unrealistic timelines and, you know, requirements that, you know, you can't do X, Y, Z or access your bank account if you don't have the ID, right? So this this should be something that adds, that is is functional, that adds benefits and that there's a real demand for as opposed to having to be to be pushed 
pushed top down. Um, and I think, you know, you're right. I think hopefully some of the stars are aligning and some of the sort of local led uh, delivery models will help to put the, the power and harness technology at the local level by implementing platforms right, where cooperatives and others can then use uh, to harness data, to monetize their data, to implement programs, uh, to communicate and, and to collaborate. And we're actually putting the power of technology into the hands, putting the power of technology in the hands of people, particularly on the African continent, although I might suggest elsewhere, can, can and should be done at the community level. Sometimes we're so focused on this ideology of the individual, that the individual has to have X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that's elevated ahead of family or community. And I guess I'm suggesting that a community-led model could be very powerful and, and very effective. I think particularly in, in countries where sort of the idea of the individual versus the community is very different than the Western model that developed some of this in the outset. It's a really interesting idea. I want to thank both of you sharing your time, your insights, and your wisdom. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you again for joining Digital Decisions, and uh, I hope to have you back soon.